Beloved, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today, starting in verse 46, Luke 1, 46 through 55. So you can take your Bibles and turn there or grab the Pew Bible in front of you, and it's on page 856 in the Pew Bibles. Let um, me just remind you, say this every once in a while, but if you don't have a copy of God's Word at home that you can read on your own, we just invite you to take that one out of the pew in front of you there if you'll read it um, as our gift to you. Uh, we are starting in Luke. We've wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount last week. Uh, and then we're going to spend the next four weeks, Lord willing, looking through the songs of Christmas. So Luke records four different songs uh, in the first two chapters of his gospel uh, surrounding the birth of Jesus. Today we'll look at the song that Mary sings in verses 40, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Uh, next week we'll look, Lord willing, look at Zechariah's prophecy in uh, chapter 167. Uh, Christmas Eve, we'll use the angel's song in chapter 214 to... Uh, guide our Christmas Eve meditation, and then the week after that, uh, Simeon's prayer in the temple in Luke uh, 2.29, Lord willing. So, that's the plan for the coming um, sermons, uh, songs of Christmas. They've got fancy Latin names. They're very traditional in the church. The one today, Mary's prayer, is called the Magnificat, which kind of sounds like a superhero-powered feline. <laughs> Once I saw that, I could not unsee it. That's my gift to you now. Um, but it's Latin for uh, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's the first word in the prayer in Latin, uh, magnify, because that's what she says. Let's read, uh, if you're there, I hope you're there, let's read it together. Um, Luke 1, starting in chapter, starting in verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Amen. Uh, Mary figures very prominently in Luke's gospel, the early chapters of Luke's gospel, as the one whom Gabriel announced the birth of the Messiah through her womb, that she would be the mother of the son of David, who would sit on his throne forever. Uh, that happened earlier in chapter 1. And our Catholic friends have um, almost deified Mary, the way that they venerate her, um, but we should not overreact as faithful Protestants and then ignore her. Because God presents her, Luke presents her as a model. A model of faith to be imitated. Of obedience to God. And really kind of a model for what it means to be the church. To be humble before God, to receive his gifts, and to glorify him in return. So we want, I pray, to join Mary today in magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God, her Savior. Her praise invites us to praise. And that's the, the theme of the Magnificat. The theme of Mary's song is to magnify God for his magnanimous mercy. We should magnify God. We should glorify him, praise him, make him huge in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our affections, in the words we speak, in the songs we sing. We should magnify God because of his magnanimous, generous abundant, overflowing mercy. We'll think through Mary's prayer together, uh, meditate on it, Lord willing, be exalted to exalt, I mean, move to exalt him uh, in, in three movements, because Mary has sung in kind of three stanzas. 
first, she talks about how God sees, then how God saves, and then how God does what he says. So that's the outline we'll use today as we think through Mary's song. God sees, God saves, God does what he says. So first, God sees. My soul, she says, magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked on, he has seen the humble estate of his servant. That's her first reason for celebrating what the Lord has done is his attention to her. He's paid close and careful attention. That Greek word looked on is a careful inspection, awareness. We, we use that, you know, uh, in our modern English. If you say it in just the right way, I don't just see you, but I see you. That's what that word means, what Mary feels from her, uh, from the Lord. She's singing this, just to remind us of the context. She's singing this when she is visiting her cousin Elizabeth. Uh, her cousin Elizabeth, who is uh, a relative, cousin is a very broad word, um, a relative Elizabeth, who is an older, uh, supposed to be, humanly speaking, past childbearing age, but is pregnant with John the Baptist, who will become John the Baptist. We'll, we'll sing his father's song next week, Lord willing. Uh, Mary has gone to visit Elizabeth. Uh, when Elizabeth, you can look, just look up, when Elizabeth hears in verse 41 the greeting of Mary, the baby, and that's John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah, leaps in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry to Mary, right, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she, that's Mary, right, blessed are you, who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And in response to this affirmation from Elizabeth, Mary erupts in praise. Now, did she erupt immediately as a spontaneous act right on the spot? Or was there some time where she reflected on this and composed it? Luke's writing could go either way. Uh, we just know Mary responded to Elizabeth's blessing of her with this exaltation of God, that he has seen her. He's paid careful attention to her. He, he noticed her. And, and what she particularly noticed, right, is that he saw my humble estate. Uh, she was a poor lower class, from a lo poor lower class family. Uh, we know that because when they make offerings at the temple, they offer pigeons and not goats or cattle. The poorest offering, the offering for the poor. Uh, she was a poor lower class family in the socially rejected northern region of Galilee, Nazareth, city of Nazareth. Uh, Galilee was northern Israel, regarded a little bit like the southern United States, right? Have you ever noticed if somebody in a movie has a really thick drawl, they're usually the bad guy? Because it's just kind of the instinctive assumption in America. Uh, northern Israel was that kind of despised. We, we know that, again, one of Jesus' early disciples says about Mary's hometown, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, that was the reputation. That's where she was from, her lowest state. No social status, no fame, no honor. She was a young, unmarried woman. <clears throat> a nobody from nowhere. And she feels seen by the Lord. In her obscurity, he saw her. Why would he pick her? Well, we're not told why he would pick her, but Mary doesn't tell us why he would pick her, but he did. And she's amazed. Why, why would this happen to me? Elizabeth is amazed, right, that even Mary would be present and the mother of my Lord would, would come to me. <clears throat> Mary's amazed that she is the mother of the Messiah. And she's amazed particularly because she was seen this happen by a direct act of the blessing of God, the Almighty One. That's verse 49. That's what she calls him. He who is mighty has done great things for me. She's a nobody from nowhere, feels her lowness in the world's eyes, her obscurity. He is the, capital M, mighty one, the Lord almighty. And he 
has seen her and done great things for her. The greatest of the great ones has done great things for her. Such great things that from that day on, all generations will call her blessed. We'll see that God favored her in a way that was unique, utterly unique in all the history of the world. It would cause her cousin Elizabeth, her relative Elizabeth, to title her most blessed among women. What would do that? What is the great thing? What is, what is this thing that would cause Mary to be blessed? All generations will call me blessed. Well, it's not Mary, right? It's the, the child she carries. Blessed are you among women, Elizabeth says, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth knows before the child is even born that this one is destined to sit on the throne of David. This one will be king over God's people. This one will rule. She's the mother of our Lord. Um, from Genesis to Revelation, feminine glory is bound up with I'll do the script. I'll do the script. Feminine glory, feminine glory is bound up with motherhood. I'm not saying it's equal to motherhood, but it's bound, but it's bound up, up in motherhood. Eve's glory, after the fall and the fall into sin, is that she will be the mother of all the living. Deborah's glory in Judges 5 is that she is a mother in Israel. Proverbs 31 epitomizes wisdom in the flesh as a competent mother managing her household. All the way to Revelation 12, the great sign in the heavens uh, of a, a woman crowned queen giving birth. Genesis to Revelation, feminine glory is bound up with motherhood, which Mary is experiencing against all natural possibility. Elizabeth is experiencing against all natural possibility in different ways. Mary is conceived as a virgin by the, by the direct act of God. Now, that's, I mean, that's not a popular truth these days. It's true nonetheless. Feminine glory is bound up with motherhood. That doesn't mean you have to be married and have kids to be a fully-fledged woman. Just like it doesn't mean you have to be a father to be a fully-fledged man. No, you can be godly and faithful, sisters, in all that God has given you. And if you do that well, you'll do it in, in motherly ways. So motherhood epitomizes feminine glory. In the way that God made Eve to fill with glory and complement the work that Adam had done in forming, she would fill. Receive the smallest of gifts. And within, it's, just a, it's, a, it's phenomenal, within, within a female body, throw the smallest of gifts into a whole person. It's ridiculous. I was sitting, I was working at J&B Coffee on um, this sermon. And two seats down at the bar uh, was a woman talking on the phone. She had, she's training to be some kind of doula, nurse, midwife, I'm not sure. But she was talking to a friend about having experience now, assisting in childbirth, and how amazing it was to witness the, like, transition from this painful process and then all of a sudden joy because there's a new life in the world. And that, that idea, right, that femininity is bound up with receiving and glorifying and making beautiful and lovely, giving back way more than you are, are given. That's, motherhood is the epitome of that. It's not the sum total of that, but it is the image, the reality, that binds up all of the ideas of feminine glory. Um, that's triggering for some, I know. We're, we were um, very used to the idea of toxic masculinity. That's a phrase in the world. Um, there's a such thing as toxic femininity too and motherhood can get twisted into something ugly and terrible moms can be neurotic, controlling, needy, negligent maybe that's your mother and so the idea of motherhood is a sort of instantly repulsive idea to you um, 
But in Titus, let me just try to reframe some of that with the way that Titus and Timothy talk about godly motherhood with words like reverent and pure and kind and self-controlled and submissive, having a reputation for good works. This is 1 Timothy 5.10, describing godly older women, having a reputation for good works. She's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. That's a whole list of character qualities of godly femininity. Only one of them is explicitly about motherhood, right? But all the others are done and sort of can be done in motherly ways, ways that care for and bind people together and create community and give life, caring for the afflicted, devoted to good works, you know, serving others, literally washing the feet of the saints. Probably not what Paul means. He probably means that image of serving others for their good. Which, let me say, because we're talking about the most blessed among women because of a a miraculous birth, uh, that one thing our society doesn't do very well is give women struggling in childbirth or struggling to conceive room to grieve. We don't do that very well, and we should, because it is something to lament. As we've lamented today, uh, it is not something to be wished to, to, to try to, you know, kind of sweep under the rug as something that you should be able to handle and keep moving through life with a stoicism. If you or friends deal with infertility, long to be mothers or married, and, and, and no husband is in the picture, uh, have had that reality twisted and distorted, uh, it is a painful wound in most cases. And we should give space and freedom to grieve it for what it is. But like lament, not to despair, uh, not to despise God for his providence, providence, but to be honest and pray in pain in a way that leads to hope. One of the promises that recurs in Isaiah is that the barren will have more children than the one who is fertile. And that's not because she has all of a sudden more kids. It's because women bound together in the community of faith learn to love and care for and pour mercy into sisters in Christ and daughters in the faith young sons, those kinds of things. We bound together in what God has given in feminine glory. For what it's worth, masculine glory is also bound up in fatherhood. So we got masculine glory wrong before we got feminine glory wrong in our, our culture. Uh, we will turn to a father's prayer next week. I'm interested to see what comes out as we look at how a father deals with the birth of his unexpected son. Uh, we'll come that way, right? Masculinity can be toxic and be twisted in sexual promiscuity, family neglecting, careerism, uh, stay-at-home husbands who let the wife be the family breadwinner and hard worker. I mean, it can get twisted in a lot of ways. But I do want to help us see that what Mary is praising God for here is, it is one way, utterly unique, right? <laughs> she is most blessed among women because no other woman in the history of the world will ever bear the Messiah. But she stands as an epitome of what God has created in the world. It gets twisted, but should be seen as good, and we really should reclaim. Feminine glory it resonates with motherhood in all the ways it's displayed. Whether that's, you know, in a household, a mobile home or a mansion, or managing a department at a, at a workplace, or neighbors and caring for neighbors, caring for saints in the church. Mary feels that deep disparity. Who is she? Why should she be entrusted with this kind of motherly glory? I feel that way about our church. Like, who are we? Why should we, as the bride of Christ here in Wolfworth, be entrusted with the resources and the finances and the souls around us, and yet we have been entrusted with the very spirit of Christ among us to bring into our communities, our households, our neighbors, 
multiplies in our workplaces. The glory of the King of Kings as we bring the image of Christ in us into the world around us. And experiencing mercy like that, when you, you, she's, she's a nobody girl from nowhere, self-assessment, her self-assessment, who has been given this incredible favor from God, giving life to the King of Kings. That kind of mercy, when you sense that kind of mercy, when you see that kind of magnanimity toward you, it draws out praise. Your soul will magnify the Lord when you sense the magnitude of his mercy toward you. When you sense that this unique thing that God did in Mary, he has done in every one of us who has been born again to eternal life. He has seen us in our sin. He has seen us in our rebellion. He has seen us in our rejection of him. He has visited us with the gospel of good news of grace in Christ. And by the work of his spirit brought us to new life, put new life in us. When you sense the magnitude of that mercy, you can't help but magnify the Lord. And I think the longer you live, the longer you meditate on the reality of how deep the sin runs in our lives, how much mercy had to go toward you, what he really had to do to save you, the more you will be drawn to this kind of just amazement. Mary, the Bible calls it the fear of the Lord. Uh, Mary shows it to us more than tells us about it in this combination. In verse 47, she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Right? That is an intimate closeness. That's not our Savior. He is that too, right? But Mary is thinking, like me personally, he has rescued me from this life, and he's given the King of Kings through me. This is a very close personal attention. It's kind of a, you know, a deep attraction to this one who is close to her. And then in verse 49, when she comes back to the idea of who God is, he is mighty and has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And that, that captures that idea of transcendence and perfection. And you kind of bind those things together, and, and you get what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. This mix of attraction and awe. I, I wonder if you can remember the last time it really struck you how merciful God was to you. I'm not saying we live in that way all the time. We, we, I don't know if we could sustain it. Certainly not my experience. I'm not perpetually aware of the magnitude of God's mercy toward me. But in his kindness, occasionally, it, like, it really comes kind of crashing down. Crashing is not a good word. Flooding down. Uh, like Sort of like baptism all over again. This uh, flooding sense of, oh my, oh my Lord, how merciful you are. What depths of sin still reside in me? What tendencies toward neglecting the God who has saved me? I wonder if you can remember the last time that, that happened to you. And remember the savor of that moment. And that mixture of awe and intimacy. Of amazement and attraction. And we sense the magnitude of God. Wasn't your soul just drawn to magnify the Lord? <laughs> to be amazed at him? You wanted him to fill your vision and for that to, and for to stay that way. And then we fall out of that. We get back into the daily concerns. I'm speaking of motherhood, the daily concerns of motherhood and life uh, and work and community and all the kinds of things. And I expect even in glory, we won't have the perpetual sense of the magnitude of God's mercy. We will be filled with good work and godly things to do. He will continue to sustain us with those moments that we see his glory and his goodness. If it's been a while, if you're tempted 
uh, if that, that vision of him has grown dim, let me just encourage you to ask him. And then wait with patient endurance. Ask him. Flood me with that sense of your wonder again. Because God sees. He takes note of you. He takes note of us. He's merciful. The second thing that Mary says is she moves from that very personal focus on God's attention to her and his mercy toward her to his mercy toward many and that, that God saves. So it's verses 50 through 53. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He saves. He rescues. Her personal praise broadens to praise for God's work more generally and for more people through all time. Let me just say that's one sign when, when you're praising God for what he has done for you, which we should do, <laughs> that can quickly itself get twisted into a, a concerning self-regard and only praising God when he does obviously good things for you personally. The way you can tell you're magnifying God and not yourself is that your soul will do some kind of movement like this where it goes from what God has done for you to an awareness of praising God for all the ways he works, for his work in friends and neighbors and, and globally and of course the history of redemption, not all at once maybe, <laughs> not all super clearly, but you're your soul will be drawn to magnify God for more than just his particular mercy to you. It may start toward you. It often does. Uh, one thing, uh, it may start toward you, um, but it won't stay confined there. It's the way he worked in her, showing kindness and favor to someone who didn't merit it. It's the way he works all the time. Showing kindness and favor to those who don't deserve it. From generation to generation, he shows mercy. I, I thought it struck me how Mary marks time there. Um, she doesn't mark time in nice, neat, round numbers and decades or centuries. If I wanted to t- try to convince you that God was always the same, I would say something like, for millennia after millennia, right? Nice, round, thousand-year number. <laughs> Mary marks it by generations. The birth of children to their raising to adulthood. One generation after the next, after the next. My great-grandparents... My grandparents, my grandparents, my parents. God showed mercy in every one of their generations. He shows mercy to me as I grow into adulthood. In my kids' lives, he will show, he will be the God who shows mercy. In my grandkids' lives, he will be the God who shows mercy. In my great-grandkids' lives, should the Lord tarry this long, he will be the God who shows mercy. Again, I think maybe something there about the feminine nature of sort of building community that she notices to mark time that way. So that you and I can confidently tell our children what Mary gives witness to here. God's mercy is available for you. Because just as he is merciful in my generation, he is merciful in yours. We can tell our grandkids, God's mercy is available to you. Because just as he is merciful in my generation, he is merciful in yours. From generation after generation, God is a God who gives us mercy. He shows favor to those who don't deserve it. But not to everyone. Not to everyone. Mary's very, very, very careful here. And biblical. Filled with the Holy, the Holy Spirit. 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 He shows, he shows mercy to those who fear him. He shows mercy, shows mercy to those who fear him. That's one of those words. I've already mentioned it, but it's one of those ideas that really just doesn't translate very well because English fear often just means terror. Sounds like what God wants you is terrified of him. Um, 
But the idea is it's much more historic. The word fear has a much more rich history. So it's that mixture of awe and attraction. Wonder at his glory, reverence for his perfection, a sense of smallness compared to his power, uh, and our nearness because of his grace. And wrap all that up together, and you get the fear of the Lord. Awe and intimacy, wonder and reverence, nearness. If you want God's mercy, you must fear the Lord. If you want to receive God's mercy, you have to not just be undeserving, you have to acknowledge it. Every one of us is undeserving. But to receive the mercy of God, you have to admit it. In 51 through 53, Mary rehearses the ways God acts in these rescuing and saving ways for those who fear him and trust him and tremble at his word. She says he has shown, she says, he has shown strength with his arm. Verse 51, which is a, it means something very specific in the Bible. The Old Testament, when God saves with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, it's almost always a reference to the Exodus. When Mary says he has shown strength with his arm, she's evoking the Exodus, the freedom, the rescue that God worked to bring his people out of slavery under the uh, enslavement from the political and military powerhouse of their day in Egypt, while the Israelites did nearly nothing but watch and wait. When Mary says he's shown strength with his arm, that's that's what she's evoking. So these great reversals in 51 and 52, they're not a call to political action. Some people have taken it that way. We should throw down all kings and get rid of all authorities. That's not what it is. It's a call to remember this is how God has worked for his people throughout history. Tyrants who've oppressed them, he has not allowed to endure. The proud, in the thoughts of their heart, he has scattered. And that image of scattering is the idea of fruitless powerlessness. They just they, Instead of a concentrated power that can work their oppression, he's scattered them into an ineffective existence. That's the opposite of fearing God, being proud in the thoughts of your heart. The thinking that you can resist him. You might think of Pharaoh plague Moses came, refusing to bow to God's wishes for his people. You might think you can reject him. You might just ignore him. All of that is evidence of the proud thoughts of our proud hearts. That we can live life, we can run our our days, we can decide our ethics, we can determine our morals, we can know what's best for us without him. But Mary says what is true, those proud in the thoughts of their heart, he scatters. He makes fruitless and ineffective. So, beloved, even if the only throne you want to sit on is, like, your own life, if that's the highest your aspirations for self-determination go, I don't really want to domineer over a whole city or a whole country. I just want to run my own life. He's going to take you off of even that throne. Even if that's the limit of your desire, he will bring you down off of it unless you step off of it yourself. Because the humble, he exalts and shows mercy. He exalts those of humble estate. Uh, That reversal, I said it's not a general call to political action, but it is a particular warning for those in authority. That's authority in your household, in your workplace, in a community. God is able to bring down powers from their thrones. He has shown himself able to do that countless times in the history of redemption. He casts rebellious angels out of heaven. He decimated Egypt at the Exodus. 
He broke the political alliance of the Canaanites in Joshua's day and the fear that Ahaz had from Isaiah 7. He even took Davidic descendants off of David's throne when they got proud and rejected him and turned to idols. I don't think he won't do the same today. So if you have authority, if you have some influence, if you are a power, whether it's a small power in your household or a big power in a company or in in a neighborhood or with just the influence you have, you must use it humbly as a servant of God. Or you will find yourself opposing him and him opposing you. It should be a particular encouragement for nobodies from nowhere. People without the power or the influence or the wealth to grease the skits of life in their favor. Who feel isolated and alone and overlooked. Earthly powers may exploit, abuse, and neglect you. But God is able to raise you out of your powerlessness. God is able to see and know and give mercy. More than that, God delights. He delights to raise the humble and exalt them, to give them glory. But to be lifted, you must look to him. You must fear and trust and return to him, the love that he offers to you. He fills the hungry and sends the rich away empty. That's the contrast in verse 53, which is not, again, not the, the point is not that every hungry person gets filled and every... Um, wealthy person gets nothing. The point is that earthly influence, worldly wealth, it counts nothing for God. If you think you're going to stroll into his throne room and because of your wealth or your influence, or your status, your reputation, your degrees, your credentials, your family history, whatever it is, that will have no weight before him. If that's what you come claiming, you'll go away empty. If you proudly reject him or ignore him, he scatters you into futility. But if you fear him, love him, trust him, you receive mercy. No matter how empty you are, poor, or worldly insignificant you are. You can come confidently to his throne of grace. When the world would keep you out of the halls of power, confidently to the hall of power, with nothing but a plea for mercy, confident you will be heard. Nothing but a plea for mercy, confident you will be heard. All you need to receive the mercy of God is to confess that you need mercy. That's all you need. All you need to receive God's mercy is to confess that you need it. If you think he owes you, you'll find you're devastatingly wrong. But if you know he owes you nothing and look to him for mercy, you can be sure he'll look on you like he looked on Mary. Not with the same result, right, but with the same love. That should drive the way we treat others, beloved. When we know we've received mercy like that, it ought to be evident in our lives that there is no one so low or insignificant or powerless or broken that we would not give them time and energy and attention. No one should come across our path that we will ignore or turn away. We will treat with the dignity that God has treated us. When we didn't deserve it, he poured out mercy, favor, kindness, loyalty. Maybe that will help you. Family gatherings, something going on at your workplace or in your neighborhood. When you know the mercy that he has shown you, you will show that kind of mercy to others. Whether you have a lot of influence or none, you will do what you can to love and care for those in your life. Come across your path. God brings into your life. 
In fact, that awareness is really the only way, going back to point one, that God sees you. The awareness of his mercy is the only way you can be happy about that. Because if you really consider the God of the universe who is holy and mighty and powerful, paying careful attention to your life, unless you are confident he is merciful, you really should just be terrified. If you thought he knew everything about you, was paying careful attention and saw it all and was not going to show you mercy, you really should quake in fear. But when you know he's merciful, you trust his attention means good, your soul magnifies the Lord because the Lord saves. And it will change us the way we treat others. Once again, we urge you, if you don't know that mercy, if the thought of God's careful inspection of your life isn't quickly met with, yes, in the mercy of Jesus, Let's me stand before him. If you, don't, if you can't say that, man, talk to me. Look to Christ. Take your Bible and meditate on it. Um, grab a copy of the book out of the, uh, the table out there called Who is Jesus? So that your soul can magnify the Lord. He sees, he saves, and then finally he does what he says. Verses 54 and 55. Uh, Mercy for everyone who fears him then gets funneled back into her particular place, right? Mary's not evoked in uh, praising God for generic mercy to generic people. Uh, It is evoked because he has been merciful to her. And that mercy is going to be merciful to Israel, the people that she lives among, the the nation where she lives. The nation has been called by God to represent him in the world. So uh, 54 and 55, he has helped his servant Israel. The child she carries in... Her womb is not just the gift of a baby. He was told, she was told by Gabriel at the Annunciation uh, that this one will sit on the throne of David. Here's the Messiah, long awaited. Here's the promised one who will fulfill everything the prophets taught you to expect. All the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. All the way back to the promises of Abraham that the offspring of Abraham would bless the nations. All of that in Mary's womb. <laughs> For the sake of his servant Israel, he has helped He's given aid to his servant Israel. I mean, the song says the hopes and fears of all the years are bound up in that child born in Bethlehem. And the song is not wrong. All the hopes and all the fears, really of all the world, center on this one Jesus, whom God sent to the aid of his people, his servant Israel. Israel is the nation that descends from Abraham, named after Abraham's grandson, uh, Jacob, who gets renamed Israel. Uh, Becomes a whole family, then a tribe, then a nation. Is winnowed through the process of exile. And in exile in Babylon, because of their unfaithlessness, Isaiah says this, Isaiah 41, 8. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you're my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So Mary reflects on what God has done, and she sees this act of God as the great culmination of all of this promise of help to the servant Israel. He called Israel his people out of all the peoples to represent him. When you, when you hear Israel called God's servant, that's the particular idea that should come to mind, is God pulled Israel out as a nation, to be a priestly people to represent him among all the nations. They were supposed to show, they were called to show, God's glory in the world. 
Their status was based on the promises God made to Abraham. You read about those in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 18, Genesis 21. God would take Abraham as a single man and build his household so that through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And those promises, as Mary knows here, she knows those promises, that he has shown mercy because of Abraham and his offspring forever. He's just done this ever since he called Abraham. If there's one thing you learn from the history of Israel called to represent God in the world throughout the Old Testament <clears throat> is that none of that will be possible without the mercy of God because they always fail. They always start well and then fall into sin and idolatry. Isaiah, the part I read, is being given, is prophesied to a people who we know will go into exile because uh, they will reject God and turn to idols. And so he will send them uh, into disciplinary exile before he brings them back from a second exodus. If you know the Israel's, Israel's history, you know they regularly needed God's help. They regularly needed God's mercy. There would be no Mary in Galilee living in Nazareth if it had not been for the regular mercy of God for generation after generation after generation. So over and over, God speaks, as he says here, as she says here, he spoke to our fathers over and over to remind them he was saving them from Egypt, from Canaan, from Babylon, not because of their righteousness, because he had made promises. Not because they deserved it, but because he had obligated himself to Abraham. Over and over, he reminds them, as he, we did here, right? Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Why does he remind them of their history? Because it's the fact they're Abraham's children that they have reason to expect God's mercy. Because he made promises, and he will keep his promises. He does what he says. Generation after generation after generation after generation over and over and over and over. And Jesus, and Jesus, and Jesus made some seal of all of those, all of those with he, he, he is, he is the offspring, offspring of Abraham. He blesses, blesses the nations. He, he is the descendant, descendant of, Israel. of Israel who rules on David's throne. And he secures the mercy we so desperately need. We and every nation, every people, every family, every language, we can be forgiven and welcome. We know that mercy here to millennia later and across the globe. Because the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ has come to us. And mercy has come through the seed of Abraham. Exactly as God promised. And we give money to the International Mission Board to send that message to places it isn't. Because the promise of God has come to, through, from Abraham through Jesus to the world. So Hebrews 2 says, Surely it's not angels that God helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation, to offer forgiveness and atonement and cleansing for the sins of the people. The mercy of all mercies is that God sent his son into the womb of a young, child, young, young girl to grow up and die, to secure mercy for everyone so that you and I can be offspring of Abraham too so that we can be grafted into the promises God made, so that everything God expected, everything Mary was hoping for the nation of Israel would come through in Jesus and the kingdom he would establish. He has established and will come and bring. So the song asks Mary, did you know, right? Did she know that the help God gave right here when she says he has helped his servant Israel, did she know that help would come through the death of the son she was carrying? No, not yet. She would. 
She knew God had come to Israel's help. She didn't know what that would mean. For her, she'll learn something of it in um, the temple when uh, Anna and Simeon prophesy. She didn't know what it meant for her son. This great hope of Israel's help would require his death on the cross. She didn't know what it would mean for the nation she was born into, Israel, whom God was helping. That in Christ, true Israel, who put their hope in Jesus, would be gathered to him along with everyone from every nation, tribe, tongue, language, and people who would come to faith in Christ. She didn't know the fullness of what God would do. She didn't know how God would do it, but she knew that it would happen. She knew he would sit on David's throne. She didn't know that wouldn't be until after his death. And so she had to wait. These hopes that she expresses here, the final fulfillment of the reign of God's mercy and his righteousness, where proud thrones are cast down and the humble who fear the Lord are exalted, where his glory covers the world like the waters cover the sea, she didn't know she would have to wait until kingdom comes to see tyrants thrown down and hungry bellies filled, to see every tear wiped away and death have its sting cut off. She would. She's waiting still. Before the throne, along with the martyrs and all the saints who've departed, how long, O Lord, until you return? And we wait with her. But, beloved, that kingdom is coming. And so Mary speaks of all the good that God will do through Jesus in the past tense because it is so certain she can talk about it as if it's done. Like every prophet, we'll talk about the certainties of God's promises as if they've already been accomplished because God does what he says. The kingdom is coming. The gospel is spreading. The time of his return is hastening. And all those who fear him will stand before him and we will never magnify the Lord more in our life than we will on that day when the depth and magnitude of his mercy comes crashing home, not just for us, but for all those gathered around his throne. To magnify the Lord with Mary, let us exalt his name. Merciful and faithful God, you do what you say and you keep your promises and we wait. Grateful for this hope. Often confused. Walking through our own pain and difficulties and sufferings. And yet you and your mercy have seen us and shown us mercy. You have given us Christ, and he will come again. And all of your promises will be fulfilled. Strengthen us and establish us. Fill us with the work of your spirit, your endurance and patience with joy, as we magnify you.